You've got mail. This is Andy and John Talk Telecom with Andy Netzel and John Rewe. You're logged into Andy and John Talk Telecom. I'm Andy Netzel. And I'm John Rewe. Thanks for joining us for episode three here. John, I am uh, really looking forward to it. We have some some good content. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, got the new home office set up and uh, moved in. So it's taking shape and uh ready to get this next episode on the books good man yeah the uh the new office setup looks good and uh hopefully we won't have to deal with any intermittent um you know internet access issues now that you're you're out of the country and in a more uh more urban area with some more reliable internet so looking forward to that yeah verizon uh wireless hotspots working well and my uh, terrestrial internet service modem just showed up in a box, so I gotta get that set up. And uh, yeah, it's nice to be in the middle of civilization again. Good. Did you ever get your uh, your Jeep fixed? Get it started yet? No. Um, pretty much everything has been moved out of the old house except for that. So uh, that is this weekend's project yet again. You gonna try to fix it, or you're just going to uh, give up give up on it for now and uh, get a trailer to to move it out of there? I mean, the trailer's there ready uh i think i'm gonna spend about an hour max on it and if that fails it's getting winched (laughs) (laughs) i gotcha sometimes uh you know you you gotta pick and choose your battles and uh, that may be a a a battle you want to push off to the future and and deal with it when it's not you know 100 degrees outside Uh, yep and that is exactly what is forecast yet again because this is texas in august after all it is texas in august and summer's just boiling on no end in sight, um, but hey, you know, it could be worse. I got the PGA Championship on. I'm watching some 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 major level golf, so it could there you be go. worse. It could be worse. But hey, what we got for uh, for our listeners today, uh, we're going to do uh, today or this week really in telecom history. We're going to bring some news uh, regarding some of the info we talked about last week, so a little bit uh, parlaying off of last week's news. We have an interview with Monica Simpson of Texas Utility Engineers. Uh, we're going to talk about what an engineering firm can do for, uh, for telecom companies in, in today's marketplace. And then we're going to end with, um, again, announcing upcoming SCTE trainings and a travel corner. And uh, John, I think, uh, like I said, we got a lot of good content. Looking forward to it. You ready to dive in? I am ready. Let's go. Let's get into it. You want some butter on your broadband? Some IoT in your tea. What are all these crazy questions they're answering? You're listening to Andy and John Talk Telecom. All right, and we're back. Uh, Thanks for listening to Andy and John Talk Telecom. As always, you can find us on iTunes Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, Please subscribe. Leave a five-star review. If you have a a question for us or a question you'd like us to to research and answer, go ahead and leave us that five-star review. And in that review, put your question, and we'll try to get to it in a future podcast uh so we we invite you to leave your feedback we'd love your feedback and we would absolutely love of you to subscribe to the podcast that would that'd be tremendous so john without further ado let's get into uh this week in telecom history what happened this week in telecom history so this week in telecom history the first transatlantic telegraph cable was completed this occurred on august 5th 18 
58. After four failed attempts, American merchant Cyrus Westfield succeeded in his quest to complete a transatlantic cable. Construction only took two months. However, the cable was only operational for one month following its completion. Nevertheless, the successful cable proved the viability of cross-ocean telecommunications, and Mr. Field was able to raise funds to establish the first permanent telegraph line eight years later in 1866. So we have our, wow. you know, yeah, in 1858, our first instance of, you know, two continents separated by a large ocean being able to communicate with each other via, via cable. So it's a uh, definitely a huge undertaking and a huge accomplishment uh, by Mr. Field and those who helped him build it, but uh, certainly laid the groundwork for the, uh, you know, the, the global communications that we have today. Yeah. What year was that? 1858? 1858, pre-Civil War. So impressive that they pulled that off so early. And, you know, it's amazing we take such kind of communication for granted now and we're using things like satellites back then can you imagine what an accomplishment that was right instead of uh instead of instead of writing a letter and you know uh putting it on a ship to travel across the ocean it, you know might get there weeks later they had the ability to uh just to to use morse code and to to cable um messages back and forth across the ocean uh, certainly uh you know, a huge accomplishment and something that must have been very eye-opening to, to people in that day. That wasn't even that much uh, longer after sailing ships had been. In fact, I think sailing ships were still in use at that point uh, pretty widely. I mean, steamships were uh, just, you know, gaining uh, gaining common uh, use at that point. So, yeah, pretty wild times. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, John, are you ready for the news? I'm ready. What's going on in the telecom world? All right. Without further ado, let's get to news. Before I get to my main news story, I have a quick smaller story. It comes from Broadband Now, which is a data aggregation company that helps consumers find internet service in their area. So, for example, if you move to a new area, you're trying to set up all of your utilities, and uh, Broadband Now can assist you with internet service. So you may, you may have used it. You probably already knew who was in your area when you moved, John, for, for internet service. But if you didn't, Broadband Now could have helped you. Uh, they also write various articles, and they're active in the, uh, the telecom industry. Well, John, do you remember when we talked during the last episode, uh, do you remember what the benchmark speeds are for broadband access? As currently defined by the FCC, it's 25 meg downloads, 3 meg uploads. You are absolutely correct. A-plus student, John. Yes, 25 megabits per second download speed and 3 megabits per second upload speed are the benchmark speeds, and they, uh, they have been that way since 2015. Well, last week, Broadband Now proposed a new benchmark of 100 megabits per second for download speed and 25 megabits per second upload speed. That would oh, be a, a bump. Uh, that is a bump. That would be a, a dramatic increase and a pretty uh, fantastic news for consumers. It remains to be seen uh, if this gains any traction with lawmakers, but an increase uh, in, in those benchmark speeds is bound to happen over the next few years, I would imagine. Uh, you know, they, they've been that way since 2015. We've had a lot of technology breakthroughs and technology improvements over the past five years. So I think it's just a matter of time before uh, we see an increase in those benchmark speeds for what is to be considered broadband access. 
Well, I think you kind of have to look at that seriously now. I mean, especially with people working from home, uh, you know, Zoom is what we talk the most about in terms of, uh, you know, whether we're having Zoom calls at work or um, Teams calls, um, WebEx, whatever platform. But I mean, we're also using Zoom to uh, connect with our families and friends too. Zoom uh, says that they want uh, one meg download, one meg upload minimum to operate effectively. But I mean, you know, you get that, you get some streaming, you have a couple of Zoom calls going simultaneously. Uh, you know, whatever you're doing, school at home, you're going to chew through 25 by 3 pretty quick. So, you know, as, as more and more uh, devices are online in the home and more people are streaming and need real time communications, um, uploads become more important. And a 25.3 is uh, probably not quite going to handle it. But, you know, the other implications of that are, you know, the delivery methods. Not all of the current fixed wireless uh, services that are kind of prime for rural um, uh, customers are, are able to deliver, deliver those kind of speeds uh, consistently. Um, and, you know, there's definitely fixed wireless that is capable of the 100 by 25, but it's, it's going to take more investment. And, um, you know, also that'll make fiber probably look uh, a little more appealing or necessary in certain aspects. So it'll be interesting to see which delivery methods and definitely it's going to cost more uh, to reach that new threshold if they were to uh, uh, bump that from 25.3 to 125. Absolutely. I mean, at least initially it'd be fantastic for consumers. You know, you want a you want more Internet service, you want more bang for your buck. But on the back end, they may see an increase in the price of those services, as you said, uh, certain um, providers would have to update their lines or update their, their methods of delivery. And, uh, you know, like you said, it costs money and they will have to recoup that some way. And, and you mentioned Zoom and how it takes, uh, you know, upload. It's not just about the download speed. It's also about the upload speed for video and voice and all that stuff. And another uh, application of that is uh, security systems that have been becoming increasingly popular over the, over the past few years. The one that I use is, is called Simply Safe. You may have heard of it. Uh, it's very easy. You order your uh, your suite of security um, applications online. It gets mailed to you, and it's very easy to set up yourself. Uh, so we have a a camera in the house uh, that we can see in real time whenever we want through our phones, and that requires a certain minimum uh, upload speed for that to happen. Well, I wanted to add some more cameras to the system, uh, and I was only able to add. Um, uh, a, a small amount more and less than what I wanted to uh, due to the limitations of my current internet packages upload speed. Uh, I need a more upload speed and I just didn't have it, but uh, if they change these benchmarks for, for broadband to 125, then, uh, you know, I, I would have the, the upload uh, bandwidth necessary uh, for, for all my, my security needs. But like you said, zoom calls, schooling online, uh, internet, um, or sorry, security systems that, that require the internet. All of this, you know, takes bandwidth, download and upload. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the FCC does and we'll have to keep an eye on it. Let's get to the main news stories here. And this one has to do with satellite internet. Um, and if you remember, we talked a little bit about satellite internet in the last episode. Well, Elon Musk's Starlink internet service was denied rural digital opportunity funds by the FCC. Starlink submitted their application to be able to participate in the October auction of RDOF dollars. However, their latency is currently too high to be considered. Eventually, Starlink wants latency to be under 20 milliseconds, but right now they do not meet the FCC's threshold 
of 100 milliseconds for latency. And you may ask, well, what's the big deal? Why, why is latency an issue? Well, after a long day of work, you come home, you want to binge your favorite show, let's say. Maybe it's Parks and Rec, maybe it's Game of Thrones, or maybe it's Wizards of Waverly Place. Who knows? Who cares? We're not judging your, uh, your TV show tastes. But you want to enjoy your show buffer-free, and that's where latency comes in. The higher the latency, the more your show will pause to buffer while you're watching it. So no rural digital opportunity fund dollars for SpaceX and Starlink, but Starlink will forge ahead. All right, so right now... They are um, they're saying that they have nearly 700,000 individuals across the United States who want its service, its service being uh, internet provided by satellite. They've asked the FCC to increase uh, the number of authorized user terminals from 1 million to 5 million. They want to place 12,000 small satellites in orbit. Uh, currently, or 12,000 is what they currently have planned. They want 30,000 uh, know, planned through the FCC or sorry, they have 12,000 planned through the FCC and they have 30,000 additional satellites planned through the International Telecom Union. So they're talking a, a total of 42,000 satellites up in the air. They have more than 500 deployed now. They're gonna start their private beta test this summer. They will have a public beta test in the fall and they plan to begin offering commercial service in the Northern United States and Southern Canada uh, in late, either late 2020 or early 2021. Uh, as I said before, they are targeting uh, less than 20 millisecond latency. However, they, uh, they are over 100 milliseconds right now and did not qualify for rural opportunity funds. Um, so while that is a, um, you know, that's a, a negative, that's a bummer for uh, Elon Musk and Starlink. They are forging ahead. They are not to be deterred. Um, they're going to continue on. So, Let me ask you this. Is there uh, any info about the beta test? Like if, if, you or I want to get on this beta test. I mean, can we sign up for that? Do you we know, know I haven't, anything about that? I haven't found any, John. I will need to, uh, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. I will need to look into that. Um, but no, I have not. I have not found any any uh, info on that. But one interesting note, so according to the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, so pretty much the UN Space Force, there have been 8,500 satellites, probes, landers, crewed spacecraft, and other flight elements launched into orbit since 1957. 8,500. So SpaceX launches 42,000 satellites just for um, its Starlink internet service. It alone will be responsible for a five-fold increase in all launches conducted by humanity. That is uh, awfully ambitious of them, and uh, it's just, just pretty remarkable that they could you know, launch that many you know, objects into space and we could have global um you know internet coverage provided by satellite that's just an insane amount of satellites you know i i mean it certainly speaks to uh i guess presumably a reduced cost in uh lofting these little satellites uh up into space and well these are pretty small, right? Like, what's, do you know about what size these uh, Starlink uh, individual satellites are? They are. I don't know what they are relative to other, you know, satellites already in orbit, but uh, they were described as cafeteria tray, not size, but cafeteria tray, um, you know, it's kind of what they look like. So just think of a huh. cafeteria tray or a, a baking sheet, and uh, that's what it's going to look like. But in terms of size, I, I don't know, John. I'm well, I mean. Not see that. Let's you know, I mean, 
doesn't take up a lot of space and we assume that uh, space is infinite but you know all these communication satellites i think take up a fairly low earth orbit so there's got to be a point where you know when do you send up a rocket and risk uh, hitting one of the starlink uh cafeteria trays <laughs> right it's just gonna it's gonna take a lot more planning for anyone who who wants to get into space which is a good point john because there is someone else who wants to get into space and compete directly with starlink so it's been a kind of a double bummer for starlink this week they were denied world digital opportunity funds and now jeff bezos uh has announced that his company blue origin uh wants to essentially do the same thing that starlink is aiming to do and provide internet access via satellites so jeff bezos owner of amazon uh had one of the most profitable quarters uh, in, in Amazon history, may have been the most profitable quarter in Amazon history last quarter. Uh, it may or may not surprise you. Maybe it, it could be surprising because of how the economy is doing in general or is you know not really surprising since everybody orders whatever they can from Amazon since uh, you know, no one wants to go out into, uh, into the stores during a, during a pandemic. But regardless, Bezos announced that he's investing $10 billion dollars uh, to launch over 3,200 satellites uh, named Project Cooper, K-U-I-P-E-R. And uh, he wants to just, like I said, just do the same thing Starlink is aiming to do, provide internet access via satellites. So Starlink has some uh, competition in this realm. Uh, so we will see uh, what happens in this battle of billionaires. Well, the battle of the titans. <laughs> That's right. Battle, battle of the titans, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, both seem to be very, uh, um, you know, ambitious, strong-headed, and uh, you know, want to bend you to their will. Uh, so we will see who uh, who succeeds and who gives in first. Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, we haven't had uh, companies and uh, personas that have had the kind of capital to be able to make such bold, like nation-sized moves in things like space. Um, so it's super interesting to be at this point in time where, you know, Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos and others have deep enough pockets to do stuff like this. And I mean, the sort of uh, technological advancements we'll see come out of this are pretty fascinating. Uh, but also these guys uh, have personalities, too. And uh, it's it, it's kind of entertaining uh, as it is uh, from a personal standpoint, as it is um, technological. So who knows? Um, you know, I notice, especially with Amazon getting, you know, at first you see Amazon trucks you see Amazon bought some airplanes a while back. You see Amazon buildings everywhere, distribution centers. There's a new one coming into Austin right now. Um, I saw a new mode of transportation, uh, on a train the other day, the shipping containers, there's ones that say Amazon on them. So, I mean, the, the scale that they're growing and, and the next thing we'll see space vehicles that say Amazon, uh, up there with the with the Starlink ones. This is an interesting time to be in telecom and to be in the world. And John, there's something that uh, that, that you had sent me, uh, you know, dealing with SpaceX and and versus Dish. Um, and before we get into that, you know, just kind of made me think, like, why do I want satellite internet? You know, I've had satellite TV in the past, and a storm rolls through, and uh, I'm I'm without my you know sat without satellite tv for one two three hours however long the storm lasts and um you know when a storm rolls through you want uh something to do you know you can't go outside you want internet access to be reliable and not to be spotty 
uh, just because of a storm. But, you know, then I thought about where he used to live. That may be someone's best option in, in, in rural America. Sure. You know, last week we talked about uh, the percentage of farmers that have uh, insufficient Internet to run their business. Um, and that's just farmers. You know, that, you know, relates. That's the case for a lot of rural Americans. So if you go from zero Internet to pretty fast Internet that occasionally goes out when a storm goes through, you know, you probably take that uh take that option and be happy for it. So, you know, I think it's just part of the, you know, march of technology. And, uh, obviously, you know, not many people are going to argue that a, against that a fixed wired connection is the best, but yeah, I mean, you know, if you're out in, uh, out in the boonies on your farm, trying to run a farming operation, uh, out in, you know, wherever the case may be, um, and you can get satellite internet that, you know, maybe is 25 meg download, three meg upload, except when it's raining. Hey, uh, you'll take that. You'll take that. That that might be your best option, and you're not going to complain about it because you've had years of of much worse, of much worse. So that just shows how how spoiled I've been with uh, with um, fixed wired uh, connections. But John, yeah, you want to talk about a uh, Dish versus uh, SpaceX and 12 gigahertz? So take it away. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that we've uh, spent some time uh, here at the beginning of our uh, podcast talking about SpaceX, and now that's really relevant uh, as it pertains to um, one of the big stories that we continue to see in telecom, which is 5G. Um, I'm calling this segment DISH versus SpaceX, the 12 gigahertz wars. Um, You know, it's just remarkable to me that SpaceX is now relevant to the telecom industry discussion, and clearly... It's no longer just uh, one of Elon Musk's uh, pet projects that the techie folks uh, pay attention to, uh, geeks like myself. I mean, this is Starlink is mainstream now, and, and now we're talking about uh, Jeff Bezos' uh, foray into this. Um, so, you know, while the FCC may say that Starlink is not ready for prime time because there are latency issues or or uh, trials aren't far enough along. Um, so they're not getting any rural development opportunity funds. Still, they're in the discussion, and they are in Washington even now bumping into conflicting agendas on the part of the terrestrial wireless operators. Um, I'm going to get into that more in depth, but let me back up for a minute and tell you about the new kid on the block in the 5G race. You know, For a while now, we've been familiar with the big four wireless providers in the U.S., uh, Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, and T-Mobile. Of course, Sprint and T-Mobile have merged uh, recently, so now we're down to three major providers. But a new fourth player is joining the fray in a very bold way right now. If you haven't been paying attention, that new kid on the block is Dish Network. Uh, We've long known them as the satellite video provider uh, competing with uh, AT&T's DirecTV. and now DISH is aggressively pursuing the construction of a pure 5G network. Um, it's suddenly become a little more uh, uh, apparent as uh, there's been more talk about it in the news. Um, DISH Network is staffing up their 5G team, but they've been laying the groundwork for this for a while now. Um, and while they begin to build this 5G network from scratch, um, they've also gone ahead and jumped into wireless in a different way with the acquisition of the Boost Mobile prepaid wireless unit from T-Mobile. Uh, 
um, which gives them roughly 9 million mobile customers. So, so, so they're is, in wireless just, right now. Yeah, so they're not just jumping in in, in 5G here. They're, they're competing directly with Verizon, ATT, and Sprint T-Mobile and the wireless side as well? Uh, sort of. So, you know, Boost is a prepaid uh, wireless product, kind of like uh, Metro PCS or, uh, or Cricket. So it, it does serve a different, um, kind of targets a different part of the market. But okay. uh, what they're going to do, since they uh, Dish doesn't have any, any existing wireless network, um, so what they will do is um, host this, continue to host this Boost mobile product on the uh, legacy T-Mobile uh, network where it has resided uh, you know, until now. Um, they have a MVNO agreement, uh, Dish does, with T-Mobile. It'll allow them to... Uh, Post that on T-Mobile for a while now, um, and that'll be completely separate from what Dish is building because they're going to build the first, I think, the first five uh, G pure five G network uh, moving forward. So you know these other providers, they have their um, while they're rolling out five G, they've also got to continue to support their four G and three G customers uh, to varying capacities. But T-Mobile starting with five G, they're not going to be backwards compatible with any of the previous generations. So Dish. Um, Dish, Dish starting yeah. with 5G. Okay. Dish starting with 5G. So that's going to be a first in the industry, and, and they're also kind of going about it in an interesting way with an open RAN architecture, which we'll probably be talking about more in the future. But yeah, so Dish is going big into 5G, and that's kind of the big story in that space, and that's where they have found SpaceX playing in their sandbox or vice versa, depending on your viewpoint. So one of the big pieces of the 5G discussions is around spectrum allocations. Uh, millimeter wave and mid-band are what you hear a lot when we're talking about this. Um, you know, Millimeter wave frequencies start at 24 uh, gigahertz and go up to and beyond 39 gigahertz. Um, the millimeter wave can move data really fast, a lot of data really fast, but it, it doesn't propagate so well um, over long distances, and especially if you have foliage. So you've kind of heard some of that is, is some of the early 5G deployments um, have rolled out in certain areas. You know, Verizon is kind of committed to the millimeter wave technology, um, and you've heard a little bit about, you know, where uh, foliage can kind of attenuate the signal. And, and so it's a little, it's kind of focused on that. Mid-band is considered by a lot of people to be more of a sweet spot because it allows better range and still pretty fast speeds that are improvements over 4G, if not as blazing fast as millimeter wave. So anyway, you've got millimeter wave, you've got mid-band, and then there's 12 gigahertz. So... Dish Network wants the FCC to update its rules to allow the use of 12 gigahertz band, enabling it to use it for their 5G wireless endeavors. Um, Dish Network owns 12 gigahertz um, spectrum right now, uh, and they have used that for their satellite video services, um, as have other satellite uh, video providers. SpaceX, on the other hand, has some grand plans to use 12 gigahertz uh, under the current FCC rules for providing broadband via Starlink, as we've discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. So there you have your ingredients for a showdown between Dish and SpaceX. So kind of getting a little more specifically in the weeds about this, 
<clears throat> Dish wants to use the license that it holds in 12 gigahertz spectrum, specifically from 12.2 to 12.7 gigahertz, to provide two-way mobile broadband services. Um, and this uh, this change that they're looking for in the FCC rules dates back to a petition that it joined uh, in 2016, along with some other 12 gigahertz licensees. Um, looking to move from just one-way communications to allow two-way communications in that spectrum. Um, the petition states that this 500 megahertz chunk of contiguous spectrum is ideally suited for 5G deployments, and yet licensees are hamstrung in their ability to provide 5G services by outdated commission rules that impose unnecessarily restrictive technical and operational limitations. Um, the petition argues that the commission should act now to modernize these rules to enable sharing in the 12.2 to 12.7 gigahertz band. And obviously, like I said, this petition was put out in 2016. It's still under consideration. And so DISH, now that they're ready to start building out their 5G network, um, they're they're pushing FCC to, to make some decisions on this and open this up. Um, meanwhile... Uh, let's see. According to reporting in Fierce Telecom, uh, during its recent meeting with the FCC, Dish has explained that granting a pending SpaceX application to use 12 gigahertz for satellite use would permanently foreclose the use of the band for terrestrial 5G. So, so yeah. Dish cannot use the 12G spectrum with SpaceX at the same time. No. So, there's a couple of things there. So, I think what SpaceX wants to use. Uh, I think they still want to use it for one-way communication, and they'll use other mm -hmm. bands for uh, for uh, for their uh, uplinks. I think um, is the way I understand it. And Dish wants them to open it up for two-way communications because sure. um, it's traditionally just been used for delivering linear video with no return communication. Um, so yeah, so Dish has all this spectrum. They can continue to use it for uh, delivering video, satellite video, but they want FCC to update the rules which were set I think back in 2000 um, and that's the framework under which we're currently operating um, and which SpaceX wants to continue to operate under um, so why yeah. why this 12 gigahertz band why can't dish use 12 and Starlink use 13 gigahertz you know I can't speak specifically to what happens in the 13 gigahertz band but when you look at um, the different uh, spectrums that communications like to use there are certain benefits to different ones like we talked about millimeter wave is um, way up in the 24 to 39 gigahertz band and it allow the waves are much smaller so it travels a lot faster but there's a trade-off with um, you know whether you're drawing through foliage or through buildings it doesn't propagate as well uh, I'm there's probably some reasons why 12 and 13 um, you know perform differently for communications. So I would assume that's why the value is in 12 gigahertz uh, without being an RF engineer. I couldn't really speak beyond that, but um, you know, that's, and that's not actually the only part of the spectrum that SpaceX proposes to use. That's just one piece of it. But sure. my assumption would have to be that they like the performance characteristics of it and have the technology in place to utilize that. Sure. They're competing so, for the, the allocation of, you know, limited spectrums that, that work best for, for everybody right so spacex is over there in dc arguing there that uh, we 
operators like SpaceX, I guess they're also speaking for, you know, perhaps um, anyone else, maybe Bezos, uh, developing cutting-edge technologies that allow them to provide advanced broadband to consumers uh, in that band and that 5G operations in the 12 gigahertz band from DISH and others would create enough interference to significantly reduce satellite use of the spectrum and risk major degradation and disruption for consumer downlink services. Um, so I know SpaceX is arguing that in front of the FCC. I think they're lobbying uh, lawmakers as well on that um, because if the FCC would sort of bend to DISH's goals, then SpaceX is going to have to retool their plans a little bit. So, you know, I, I don't envy the FCC trying to figure out how to navigate that, you know, find a middle ground that will keep everyone happy. But, um, Maybe, but that's uh... kind of a battle that's going on. Maybe the FCC will throw SpaceX and Starlink a bone since they, they denied them real digital opportunity fund dollars. Maybe they will uh, give them a consolation prize of, uh, of allowing, um, you know, only satellite applications to tease the 12 gigahertz spectrum. Sure. It's you know, pure speculation at this point who oh, will win out, but it'll be interesting. Who knows? Very interesting to watch. And again, just going back to what I said earlier, the fact that we're talking about a satellite internet provider in this context and that it's not just a, you know, pipe dream idea. It's really real. You know, I mean, I think we probably thought when Elon Musk set out to build cars, that was like, Oh, that'll be interesting. This crazy guy. Right? Yeah. But it's the high automaker with the highest valuation in the world right now. So, you know, and I mean, I live in Austin, you see a lot of Teslas around here. So it's real. And satellite internet is uh, presumably about to be quite real. Um, it is. I mean, they're talking 42,000 satellites in, in orbit. Uh, you know, what happens when, you know, one of them breaks or one of them needs repair? You can't just uh, send up a guy uh, with with his wrench like you can with a, a bucket truck or a ladder to, to repair terrestrial um, internet service. If, if there's a satellite that needs repair, they're going to have to look at how they they do that. Do they just launch a new satellite and, and trash the old one? And then, you know, we're looking at more than 42,000 satellites. And at some point, you know, low, low, uh, low orbit atmosphere has to become cluttered, right? Yeah, you what would think, think so. You would think, you know, right now, you know, we have our terrestrial internet services and, and, you know, if you've got fiber bar, uh, you know, fiber cut, those get responded to very quickly uh, by the providers. And if you're, your internet's getting delivered over a, a like a HFC network. They roll a bucket truck out there, and they have a pretty quick set of tools. And uh, um, boom up uh, to check this out and get it fixed, and you're back in business pretty quick. Not uh, you know, as far as we can tell, uh, you don't just uh, say, "Hey, we got an outage. Let's sh let's shoot a guy up in a rocket right quick." So, right. <laughs> regardless of your thoughts on on Elon Musk, uh, he has delivered on certain promises with Tesla. And with SpaceX, I mean, now we're launching astronauts to the space station from U.S. soil for the first time in years. Um, I'm not going to count them out on this satellite internet deal. No, you know, and we talked also earlier about, um, you know, Bezos versus uh, Musk. Uh, there's an interesting article on lightreading.com right now from Mike Dano where he talks about uh, basically a, a financial celebrity death match among the billionaires with a stake in the outcome of this 12 gigahertz battle. So you've got, you know, the guy that owns Dish, and you've got Elon Musk, and there's a third player here, which is um, uh, Michael Dell. He's uh, Dell is backing one of the interests in the 12 gigahertz battle. So, um, yeah, 
it's uh, it's pretty interesting to watch. Well, we will certainly uh, keep our thumb on the pulse of that. We will watch that, and I am positive we will be talking more about this in, in news segments to come. So I appreciate that, John. A lot of good information for for us and for our listeners on the viability and the 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 coming of satellite internet to uh, to maybe a town near you. Well, that wraps it up for uh, for the news. We will take a quick break, and we will be coming back with an interview with Monica Simpson of Texas Utility Engineering. This is Andy and John Talk Telecom. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. We uh, sincerely appreciate it. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Um, And if you would like to sponsor our podcast, if you'd like your advertising copy read here, please hit us up at aajttpodcast uh, at gmail.com or on Twitter with the handle at aajttpodcast. That's Alpha, Alpha, Juliet, Tango, Tango podcast. All right, welcome. Welcome back. Uh, We are here with uh, Monica Simpson uh, from EN Engineering. Uh, Thank you, Monica, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. You're our first uh, guest on the the podcast, our our inaugural guest. So uh, we are are looking forward to this interview and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be your first guest. <laughs> you should. I, I have the pressures on though. So. <laughs> it is. It is. So don't 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 mess this up and uh, you know <laughs> set a high bar for all of our guests to to follow. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try my best. Good. How how have you been? Good. Good. Changing. Uh, getting used to the the new norm. The I miss seeing all our clients. I miss the uh, conferences, the meetings, and it's an adjustment. I I don't think I've spent this much time at home. No, no, same, same. We, uh, we also miss the, uh, the shows and the, um, the conferences and hanging out with our, our cable mafia. So it is, uh, it has not been great, but I'm glad to hear that you're, you're hanging in there and, uh, and doing well. And like John, you are in the middle of a move as well, correct? I am. So I feel your pain, John. <laughs> Thanks. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just so much stuff you're like where did all this stuff come from what do i do with it yeah you exactly are, you're not hoarders are you either one of you i hoard oh. shoes and purses and that's about it uh, I, all right well i, I hoard <laughs> um more I heard like cars, auto, auto parts, <laughs> yeah. <and> car parts. <laughs> well, one of those fits into closets and fits in the house and the other other does not so yeah. <laughs> it is what it is but uh and again anyway again thanks for joining us monica uh, we wanted to talk to you about uh, you know what engineering firms do in the telecom world. Um, for for example, if uh, you're a small fixed wireless provider in a, a rural community, uh, maybe you're just starting up. You know you may not know what services are available through an engineering firm. Uh, you, know, it, you just might not know what uh, an engineering firm can do for you and how they can help. Can you uh, can you start by explaining uh, what a, a firm like yours does and what you can do to help a telecom customer? Sure. Uh, we can provide permitting services such as joint use applications to the various utilities and co-ops around Texas and anywhere outside of Texas. We also do TxDOT permits. Um, you need a TxDOT permit whenever you're going to work in or have a vehicle in a TxDOT right away. We can help with railroad permits. Those are pretty intensive and, and uh, take a while to get back to you. You can get almost three to six months on approval for a railroad permit. 
Um, we have licensed professional engineers. There's a lot of co-ops and utilities that are now requiring attachers to submit full loading analysis, and they must be sealed by a licensed professional engineer. So we can provide those services as well. And we also do, um, we can do PO audits if someone wants to go through and find out where their, their current fiber is attached to. So we can help with that as well. Very cool, very cool. So are you seeing um, a lot of customers starting to, uh, you know, divest of their in-house resources and kind of contract this out to, to you guys? So, you know, maybe before they had people in their in their departments that did permitting or did, you know, poll loading um, uh, surveys and whatnot, are you starting to see them branch out more or has it always been that way? Have they never had that kind of stuff in-house? So we've been doing this work for 14 years um, and it's it's always been like that. I you know a lot of our, our telecom clients, they have a lot on their plate. See, they got their projects, they, they have a lot that they have to look after and being able to just give your permitting to another company to do it from walkout all the way to submittal is super helpful. And I think they've come to rely on um, EN engineering when it comes to permitting and making sure it gets done correctly and it gets done efficiently when they're able to focus on all their, their other day-to-day -day work that they have. What about, um, you know, with so much growth in fiber, there's so much fiber being built out there. There's a lot more people on these poles. Um, uh, there's a lot more pole loading requirements or some municipalities are saying, hey, we can't put any more communications facilities on these poles. Um, I don't know, what are some of the trends and what are some of the challenges or that challenges that you see um, in the market right now? We have seen uh, there are a lot of attachers on poles right now. So we do see a lot of people are going underground. I know there's a lot more telecoms that are micro trenching. So that's kind of picking up as well. Um, it's a little more expensive to go underground. Sometimes they just see it. it's a faster way to to get to their clients than it is to go overhead. Um, pull loading, more and more utilities are requiring pull loading analysis on 100% of their polls, and some of them have certain requirements when it comes to what polls get pull loaded. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. How do you, um, uh, what are the implications for going underground? What sort of permitting challenges does that bring? I mean, I know that there could be, obviously you mentioned TxDOT, there'll be city, uh, cities, municipalities um, that are involved in that. Um, kind of what does that landscape look like? It takes a little bit longer. You got to do plan and profile type drawings for underground. Uh, those typically take a little longer to get approved than your aerial permitting. Uh, but you're not having, I think sometimes when they do it that way, they're not having to pay all the expenses when it comes to moving around all the, the comms that are on a pole or exchanging Helpful. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting to see those challenges uh, pop up as, as, as you said, these spaces get crowded as more and more providers are coming in. Andy, what were you going to say? I was just going to ask her, do you do any, um, have you worked on any towers or monopoles or anything, uh, you know, outside your traditional telephone pole um, that you see driving down the road? No, we do not. Um, we have, we do some transmission type work but not much what is the uh i think from 
my experience um, years ago um, in the construction space, a lot of permitting seemed like, and I know that a lot of it has evolved, continues to evolve, but how much is it, of it is uh, has to do with a relationship between, uh, say, the engineering firm or the or the provider that's applying for these permits, and sort of, the, and those from whom you're seeking a permit, be it the pole owner or the city or municipality. Um, what are like just personal relationships with those those um, uh, those um, entities have to do with how fast permits get turned around, or has it gotten pretty automated and and depersonalized? There's standard timelines that electric companies have to meet. I mean, they they know our work, they know our people. A lot of them, like I said, we've been doing this for 14 years, so they know our work product, which I think it makes it a lot easier on the co-op or the electric when they come across our applications. But we also do electrical distribution engineering. So our staff knows both sides. They know the telecom side of a pool and they know the electric side of the pool, which I think helps when it comes to application and make ready and electrical make ready engineering. It helps that um, our people know both the electric and the telecom side. Yeah, I think that that definitely uh, has got to help with your um, your turnaround and your response time. Uh, you know, if they know both electric and and telecom, and and with you know turnaround time, how has has COVID nineteen and um, you know the shutdown of various local and municipal governments um, has that increased your permitting time? What kind of challenges has has this current situation posed on um, on your company? And from what I've seen and heard, everything is still going smoothly. And we've been very fortunate that we've we've been busy. We're in an industry that's growing. It hasn't stopped growing for a really long time, especially here in Texas. So uh, when it comes to turnaround times, approvals, uh, submittals, it's stayed pretty steady, which I think is is really great for for all of us in this industry. No, that's that is awesome. I mean. It, we're fortunate to be in a business that is really lively and, and growing right now. And, and in certain ways, uh, the demands of work from home and, and just differences in how we're doing business these days uh, create a heightened demand and, and also kind of offsets where, you know, some of the uh, some of the other economic challenges going on. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And, and it's good to see, you know, a lot of our uh, friends and and uh, people in this industry, you know, staying busy out there. I was going to ask you, um, you know, from my experience, you mentioned railroad permits. Um, <laughs> they're always such a sticky thing. Is there any, is this just always going to be like that where you might be waiting six months for a railroad permit? Um, or is anybody talking about changing that sort of relationship or the rules around that? Because there's a lot of talk about, how to do joint use with poles and how to streamline that. There's, uh, you know, there's platforms like engines that have been developed to try to streamline that process. But, you know, when it comes to railroad permits, it, it seems like it's just, you know, stuck in how it's always been. Do you see any change or is it just always going to be a, a sort of a roll of the dice of it's going to be three months or 12 months before you get your permit back? Personally, I have not seen or, or heard anything. I haven't heard our guys talk about anything differently when it comes to railroad permits, but 
maybe ideally they start moving a little bit faster and, and as everyone else is kind of automating their systems and doing one touch uh, make ready type stuff and relying more on contractors to get information hopefully that turns around soon because yeah it's it you're right you go anywhere from from three months to six months to nine months to get a, a an approval yeah i remember um when i uh years ago when i worked in construction and we finally got this railroad permit after i think this one took 12 months we almost had a celebration with you know we we're like hey we should all go to lunch we finally got this permit back because <laughs> and it was one of those where you know we had looked at like man if we don't get this permit what are our options i mean you know how much is it going to cost to just build all the way around this other way and it was exorbitantly expensive or impossible i think there was a, a bridge involved like a over a river involved so we really didn't have any option but to get this railroad permit and and finally it happened so I always thought that was kind of funny, but um, I don't know if this is something that uh, you can speak to, uh, Monica. I'll ask this, and uh, we can cut it out if it's not good. But so you talked about technology and uh, new deployments, ranging from uh, talking about five G and uh, and wireless technology today. Um, are y'all seeing an uptick or are y'all doing a lot of uh, permitting for uh, like small cell stuff in, in like urban areas? In urban areas? No, we have not. We did a whole bunch um, probably last year, early last year in the Austin area, San Antonio area. Um, our electrical side has been doing the review side mm -hmm. of it. This whole for probably about two years now, they've been doing the review side on behalf of a electric company, but in not so much in rural. Yeah, so I was just thinking about, you know, in the cities, there's a lot of discussion about putting small cell antennas on light poles or on electrical utility poles. And there's a lot of discussion around who has access to that and how do we access it? Is it, uh, is it visually appealing enough or is it uh, problematic enough um, that, you know, it's having a hard time getting approved by the city or whatever. So I'm just yeah. curious if you've seen any of that and gone through any of that, those discussions. I, I had seen some um, antennas that were put in trash cans. So half the trash can was in it, uh, the antenna and the other half was an actual trash can. And I've um, seen them put where they're at the base of a, a lamppost. So the lamppost has a bigger, wider base than normal and they're placing the antennas in there. So they're coming up with pretty creative ways on, on how to hide these antennas just so, I mean, nobody wants a beautiful downtown to be overwhelmed with antennas everywhere. So they're getting creative, it, it's pretty neat. Wow, that's cool. I have not heard about the trash can. Yeah. With the no, I've seen <laughs> antenna. That's pretty slick. I've seen the monopoles that are, you know, disguised as trees as and, trees, and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, trees. but I have not seen the uh, <laughs> the trash can variant. Yeah, it's pretty neat. They um they opened up the back and you can see the antenna on the back of those um big old trash cans that you'll see downtown in certain areas. That's funny. So Monica, we were uh, we were talking earlier. We can uh, we can shift focus now to uh, something a little more uh, a little more fun for you but uh, you mentioned your favorite city to visit on the road is frisco texas up in the uh the dfw area um what makes that your uh, your favorite locale to visit so first of all i'm a dallas cowboys fan right so I... <laughs> nice interview over 
<laughs> so I think they did a really good job with that training facility out there. Um, it's just so peaceful and it's so quiet. And I, I normally don't like that. I'm a city person, but Frisco just, just really, just they did a really good job out there with the landscaping and everything. Um, the practice facility, I have not done the tour that's on my list when I get a little more time out there. I tried to sneak on the tour and got kicked out, but that's another story. <laughs> that um, does not surprise me. <laughs> but it's really pretty out there. There's a lot of um, great little restaurants. If you had breakfast there before lunch there, it's within walking distance. Well, not too far. I, I like, uh, not too far from a lot of the hotels that host the conferences down that way. I think the embassies down there, they do a lot of stuff with um, electrical company, electrical, um, conferences and telecom uh so that's one of my favorite places you have any uh any good restaurant or uh our bar recommendations in the in the frisco area that uh you know we or our listeners should not miss next time we're passing through so on the fancier side the silver fox is really good they have really good drinks they have really good steak um it's family style meals it's absolutely delicious um, for more low key, I totally into karaoke and I love a good karaoke night. Um, they there have, I know they have the Frisco bar and grill. That's a really cool place. They have your typical bar food. Um, pomegranate martinis are really good there. Uh, a karaoke DJ, he's a little rude, but I think it's all, <laughs> <laughs> he's like super mean and rude, but I think it's part of the whole, the whole Stick. deal. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't want to play your song? Do what? He didn't want to play your song, Monica? No, he just, like, he's really mean to people when he calls them up. (laughs) I mean, since you brought it up, what is your go-to karaoke song? I love Journey, Don't Stop Believing. I love that song. It's a a classic. (laughs) That's a a crowd-pleaser, crowd-sing-along classic. You can't go wrong with that. No, you can't. So, so the Silver yep. Fox and the Frisco Bar and Grill in uh, yep. in Frisco, Texas, are your don't miss it. Don't visit Frisco without uh, without dining at one of those two spots. Correct. Should we all sing uh, "Don't Stop Believing" on the way out? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean we, we can, but you know, we we don't want people to turn it off. Uh, so, uh, maybe if, if, if you two want to. You want people no. to tune in for your next guest. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, Monica, I appreciate the time. Uh, you have certainly set a high bar for, for future guests. Appreciate all the uh, the info on um, you know what engineering firms uh, can do for our, our telecom customers and our, our telecom contractors. Uh, sincerely appreciate the time. Appreciate the info. Um, ha- have any parting thoughts? Um, I don't. I think hopefully this new norm isn't the new norm for that much longer. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you guys along with all our clients next year. That that's right. Well, we are, we are looking forward to that too. Um, Thanks again, Monica Simpson with Texas utility engineering, which is an EN engineering company. Um, Appreciate the time, Monica. We'll see you soon. Thanks guys. Bye Monica. Thanks. We will be uh, right back with our next segment. Uh, This is Andy and John talk telecom. You're listening to Andy and John Talk Telecom. And we're back. It's time to get into the SCTE training calendar. 
Looks like we got a busy day on August 12th coming up. Andy, what do we got? We do. So Wednesday, August 12th, John, we have three uh, trainings that are available virtually. As always, log on to SCTE.org. View the event calendar. You can view these trainings and sign up for them. Uh, first one we have is my favorite chapter that is outside of Texas, and that is the Chattahoochee chapter. They have a, a training on 5G safety and awareness, technology applications, interference, uh, going on from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Next is the Cactus chapter. They have a MTDR, Best Practices and Tips webinar. It's going to be given best practices and tips on the operation of Metallic Time Domain Reflectometers, also known as MTDR. Wow, what it a mouthful. From, it is a mouthful. So I'm going to stick to the, uh, I'm going to stick to the acronym. Lost my train of thought for a second there. That is from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. on Wednesday, August 12th. And finally, the Buckeye State chapter has a leakage and ingress troubleshooting chapter. Troubleshooting training, <laughs> holy moly. For, uh, for both in-home and plant. So be sure to check that out. That is scheduled from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. As always, log on, like I said, to SCTE.org. Check the event calendar and uh, log on to those trainings uh, to increase your knowledge and further your proficiency. So with that, John, let's move on to our, our travel corner. We, uh, we're going to take you outside of the state of Texas. Uh, I know we talked about San Antonio last episode with Monica we talked about Frisco, Texas, and that's in, in, in North Texas. So I'm going to take you out. We're going to drive about, oh, four hours east of the Texas border, and we're going to the New Orleans metropolitan area. Uh, so my, my dining recommendation for there is a little place just outside of New Orleans in a, uh, a suburb called Metairie, and the place is called Chef. Ron's Gumbo Stop. Now, Chef Ron's is in this little unassuming strip mall, uh, but don't let its meek uh, or its meager appearance deceive you. They have some of the best Cajun food that I have ever had. Now, Chef Ron, he cooks it up good. He's got boudin balls. He's got jambalaya. He's got six or seven different types of gumbo, crawfish etouffee, and it is all fantastic. I won't say that I've had it all, John, but I've had a good amount of, uh, of food from Chef Ron's, and um, it is delicious. It's closed on Sundays and Mondays, so make sure you go Tuesday through Saturday, open for lunch and dinner. Uh, if you're looking for some good Cajun food, that's where where it's at. What's your uh, when you're in Louisiana? What's your what's your Cajun food go to, John? Well, you know it's all so good when you go to Louisiana, especially uh, New Orleans area. I mean, you can't find a bad meal if you're going for Cajun. Uh, boudin's legit. Uh, like some shrimp and grits, and uh, it's always fun to throw down with some crawfish. What's your uh, recommendations over at Chef Ron's? I, I would go with any of the gumbos. Uh, like I said, they have um, six or seven different types of gumbos with different types of meat: or chicken, shrimp, crab meat. They have uh, different types of rice. Um, you can get it with catfish, with fried oysters. Uh, so I would I would go with the mumbo gumbo, uh, just because it's a it's a hodgepodge of um, it's got chicken, shrimp, crab meat, crawfish, sausage, and okra and tomato all in together. So I just like to, I like to hate myself and hate my body. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to devour that. Boy, that sounds awesome. I take that and a, a can of that, uh, a beat of purple haze, and uh, enjoy life. You're good to go. You're good to go. So after you eat at Chef Ron's, <clears throat> say you go during Mardi Gras season. Now I had the chance to. 
visit New Orleans during Mardi Gras season this this past year, and it was fantastic. It was a, a, a tons of fun. The parades, the floats, um, everything is just a a grand old time. So I'm hoping that we have this uh, COVID nineteen pandemic under control uh, by. Um, you know, the, uh, by Mardi Gras for 2021. Now, of course, I'm being a little bit optimistic there and maybe a little bit naive, but one can hope, John, one can hope. But indeed, if you go, it's obviously, it's an easy recommendation. It's a, it's a great time. But if you, you know, are kind of tired of the Bourbon Street uh, scene, you want something a little more chill, a little more relaxed, maybe you're going with your significant other and you don't want to get caught up in the, in the craze that can be Bourbon Street or downtown, I would encourage you, to continue east on I-10, drive across Lang Pontchartrain and go to Slidell, Louisiana. Slidell, they have um, Mardi Gras parades just like uh, New Orleans does. It's, it is, you know, it's 20 minutes outside New Orleans, you know, depending on traffic. And they have all the parades. They have the floats. It's just a little bit more uh, chill, a little bit more family friendly. Uh, you'll find people having a good time, uh, cooking gumbo and crawfish on the side of the parade route. Everybody is super friendly and it is a, uh, it is a great time and a little bit of a change of pace from the, the Bourbon Street Mardi Gras you might be used to. So that is my, my other recommendation. After you go to Chef Ron's, head on up to Slidell for a, uh, a little bit more of a, a mellow Mardi Gras celebration, but it will still be a wonderful time for, uh, for all you who decide to go. Have you been to Have you been to Mardi Gras, John? I have not. I have been to Bourbon uh, the week before a Mardi Gras uh, a couple years okay. ago, when I went to the LCTA uh, Louisiana yeah. Cable TV Association uh, show, and uh, stayed at the uh, very cool hotel down there, the uh, Monteleone, where the Carousel Bar. Yeah, and uh, got a little bit of a preview of the Mardi Gras with a little bit of the week before shenanigans but i've never been to the actual mardi gras thing well man since since we mentioned it let's throw carousel bar in our, our recommendations as well it is in the hotel monteleone it's their their hotel bar there and uh it is unique because it is a carousel so you sit down and is it yeah you spin around the bar the bar doesn't spin you uh it's got it's it's a circle and you spin around the bar as you're sitting there drinking and it's it's unique it's got a cool atmosphere and cool decor um it's it's something that I uh, I like to check out every time I'm in New Orleans. Yeah, I think uh, I remember reading uh, it was like on a list of the top 100 bars in America once. Really? So, yeah. So okay, pretty pretty neat, and it's it's historic too. It's in a historic hotel. I mean, you could tell that it's been there forever. So pretty neat little experience over there. Pretty neat indeed. All right, this is it. Thanks for listening, guys. We are getting out of here. Uh, thank you again for listening. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Give us that five-star review. Ask us a question if you have one. And we uh, sincerely appreciate it. John, what do you got? Uh, just thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Can't wait to catch you all next episode. And with that, we're out of here.